Good morning, Sanctuary Church Online. Great to be with you. My name is Andrew, uh, the pastor here at Sanctuary Church. Wanted to let you know about a couple things. One, today, uh, at right after the 11 a.m. in-person gathering at uh, Sanctuary Central, which meets at 15 Hay Street, on the State House lawn, uh, where we do picnics all the time. We are having a big picnic today, free lunch, drinks. Come connect with other folks, uh, meet some of our pastors. If you're interested in getting more engaged, uh, more involved in the life of our church, uh, do that. I'll give you plenty of time to finish up the broadcast, uh, hop in the car and head over. So again, that's directly following the 11 a.m. service at 15 Hayes Street. So you can head right to the church, park in the mall or head over to the the, uh, the State House lawn right away. Uh, if you wanted to plan roughly a time, you could guess for about 12.30ish uh, would probably be the time to, to plan to arrive there. Uh, and then secondly, uh, we are uh, next Sunday, we are gonna do our first pathway course of the year. And if you have never heard of this course, there's a reason for that. We just changed the name of what it used to be. So this has always been called Grow Track in the past. Uh, we're changing the name to Pathway, just lines up a bit more with our language across our church. Uh, and so Pathway is simply your path to engagement in the life of sanctuary. So this is your next step in finding your place here. Uh, it's a two-week class that will be held uh, 15 minutes after the conclusion of both our 9.30 a.m. East Side gathering and the 11 a.m. Central gathering. Uh, to give you a little overview of this, week one is all about family. So this, uh, this language that we use about our church, we are a family following the path of Jesus together. So week one's all about family. We cover the story of sanctuary along with our vision, our values, our mission. We want you to know and to understand the heart of our church. And then week two is all about following the path of Jesus together. So we cover ways that you can get involved uh, and follow Jesus within sanctuary. Like what does discipleship, apprenticeship look like? What does it really mean to get involved here? We will give you an overview of our various serve teams and um, as well as joining home churches, other groups and courses coming up. There's always food at these events, so always come for lunch. And then there's childcare upon request. You can email us at hi at sanctuary, or sorry, hello at sanctuaryri.org. Uh, there also uh, should be a link in our link tree on social media or the number again that you text to get any updates and info that popped up on the screen. Uh, and there is no need to sign up. Again, I would encourage you to sign up and let us know if you do need childcare. Um, but otherwise you can, if you'd like, just show up for it. So. With that, we're gonna jump into the teaching today. We are in a series simply called The Path of Jesus. And so as we go through this series every week, uh, we're just kind of doing a little fill in the blank. So the path of Jesus is the path of. And last week we talked about the path of practice or the path of, of doing. Uh, and this week we're moving into the subject of the path of love. I wanna talk a bit about the way of love, especially in a, a world where um, our understanding of love um, it's kind of uh, convoluted or ill-defined. And I want to begin, you know, normally every single week when I give a teaching, especially if you, you know this when we're in person, we say, will you stand for the reading of the word? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure almost every week online, I've just started with, let's read a big chunk of the, of the, of the passage together, of the main kind of thrust of where we're going today. Today, I, I don't want to do that. Um, and there's a reason, and you'll catch this in a minute. I want to actually just give you a bunch of historical background. So come with me to, 
I don't know, 11th grade history class. And I want to talk specifically about uh, an area of the city of Ephesus. Now, if you're familiar at all with the scriptures, you may know that there's a book of the Bible called Ephesians. This was a letter that was written by a man named Paul who was going around setting up these outposts of love and beauty and justice, these outposts of heaven, i.e. churches, planting churches all over the region. And he had planted one in Ephesus, and he's writing a letter to them, giving them um, just things to consider. Uh, He's sharing with them, this is what it looks like uh, to walk the path of Jesus in this moment. And we believe these letters, why they're put together in the Bible the way that they are, that they are uh, in some beautiful, powerful way. They are inspired. God used these folks to share uh, with that church in Ephesus, but then also to us centuries later of this is what it looks like to follow the path of Jesus at any time. But it's always important as we seek to understand what a piece of scripture, what a passage or a letter or a song or a lament, all these things that we find in the Bible, what they have to say to us, we always want to ask, what did it mean to them then and there? What do we know about the historical background? Because it, uh, it makes it um, us be able to get much closer to making sense of how we might understand that today of course, and the power also of the Holy Spirit. So with that, let's travel to Ephesus. And I want to talk a little bit about what was happening at this particular mountain and this ravine near it. Um, And I want to circle around the idea of um, children, specifically adoption. But before we even get there, we need to start with how in, in the ancient world, Uh, They thought about uh, what it meant to be human. So the ancient world that this was written in this letter was heavily influenced by Greek thought. A hundred years earlier, Alexander the Great and the Greeks had crushed basically everybody, you know, functionally conquered the known world. They would conquer a city, build buildings, uh, place gymnasiums and schools of philosophy around, and basically have this goal of converting the world to the Greek way of thought. Um, the human body was, an, was a central focus. It was the highest center of Greek thought. They celebrated the perfect naked human body. You can think about what you know of. Again, recall some of that high school history class. Uh, The statues, the emphasis on different aspects of the body, and the de-emphasis even on others. Thinner, faster, more beautiful. Um, uh, People who dominate in competition, you want to make your body better. I mean, it sounds, I know, a bit familiar to our moment now, but think of our current cultural moment and then just sort of ramp that up. To 11. They wanted their bodies to be perfect, and they wanted their children's bodies to be perfect. And I, I want to I talk about this, that uh, your pedigree and, and, and what came from your loins as a mom or a dad um, was incredibly important. It's incredibly important now, but there was this especially, like, special emphasis on, um, on the child's well-being as they came out of the womb. So a, a few quotes from this era. You have Plato in The Nature of Justice in the Republic. Quote, the offspring of the good and reared, of the, sorry, the offspring of the good are reared. But the offspring of inferior parents, as well as deformed offspring, 
will be uh, secreted away, which is this idea of being left exposed to die, usually in the wilderness. There was something in the literature and in the thoughts and philosophy in the air at that time. They wanted their kids um, to be, again, of a certain pedigree. And if they weren't, they saw them as a burden to society. Plutarch's account to, to, Lysurgius, to Lysurgius, quote, if the baby is sturdy and strong, the father was instructed to rear it. If it was ill-born or misshapen, the elders sent it to a place called the Apathate and ravine at the foot of Mount Tegetus. You have Cicero on his, uh, and here's a very like, you know, thought leader, refined citizen. In his On the Laws, he states that, quote, deformed infants should be killed. You have the Stoic philosopher Seneca comments casually uh, in his piece On Anger. He says, quote, mad dogs we knock on the head. Unnatural progeny, i.e. kids who have, you could just say sort of special needs, we destroy. We drown even children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. These are, these are not folks um, who are on the fringes of society. There's a medical center in Ephesus. A doctor wrote a book on the criteria for establishing whether or not your child was worth rearing. Now, and to be clear, this wasn't just like, okay, they're not great, like barbaric, like we're just going to shove a knife into them. It was slightly more refined. But the difference was, am I going to sort of neglect, ignore, or where we're getting to in a moment, or am I actually going to take the time to send them to the right school, to pour into them, to give them everything they need to grow into a healthy adult? So this was written by, in the, at this medical center in Ephesus. Quote, here's how, you, how you, here's how you decide whether a child's worth rearing. A strong cry and complete in all its parts, not sluggish or weak. The joints should bend and stretch, all parts sensitive to the touch. Conditions contrary to these indicate that the infant is not worth rearing. Now, this culture is incredibly holistic. If there is something wrong with the body, they immediately connected it, immediately, to some sort of bigger spiritual problem. You must have a problem with the gods. Any blemish on a baby was sort of a mark of divine displeasure. One more image for you. There was this large hill, or sort of a small mountain, uh, crossed, that crossed the south part of the city of Ephesus. Now, most babies, again, born with any sort of blemish, not planned for, was immediately marched up the mountain. In so many cases, they keep finding more and more information on this, archaeologists, and left to die. These babies um, would you know, functionally, there's all sorts of um, just out there tales of uh, folks who were reared by wolves and found a way to survive and then came back and there's all sorts of folklore and some stories that even seem to have a little bit of truth of ones that were able to make it. Um, but in general, these babies were left for dead except for one slight ray of hope. People would climb up on the mountain and sort through the babies looking for any uh, that might make good servants or good Slaves. In other words, though the, dis, though the uh, divine displeasure was on their lives, 
perhaps they still had a little bit of potential. They would choose a child as their own to one day be their slave. So, recap. City of Ephesus, where this hill was, this particular culture where you have dying, blemished babies that the gods essentially discarded and didn't like and didn't think were worth rearing. And their only hope was that somebody would choose a blemished kid to take them in as their slaves. You got all that? Great. So if you're here with us in person, we would invite you and feel free to do this if you'd like, you know, at home on your couch or stand up on your bed or wherever you're watching from. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Paul writes, the beginning of his letter to the church at Ephesus. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Before the foundation of the world, thanks, or sorry, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple things I wanna point out if all the lights on your dashboard aren't already going off. Before the foundation of the world in verse four, before time began, before God said, let there be light, the Trinity, the triune God, interconnected, self-giving love, chose you. What did he choose you to be? He chose you to be holy and blameless. This word blameless, this is a sacrificial priestly term that literally means without blemish. In a culture that was all about zeroing in on the perfect body and emphasizing where the blemishes were. And if your kid was blemished, being left to die, you get this spoken over a church. Many who would have thought as soon as I was born, I was labeled imperfect and left to die. But here is a God saying because, or sorry, before I was ever seen, I was, I, I, I was known by the Lord. He's chosen me as a holy and blameless person. And then you get in verse five, not divine displeasure, but you get the line according to his pleasure. Remember that if you were a slave, that mark of divine displeasure was on you for life. And we have an image of the God of the universe saying, no, 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 it is, it is according to my pleasure. So I like to think at this point they would have been blown away and many, many commentators have pointed this out. But as mind-staggering as these concepts would have been to them, there would have been one concept that would have absolutely like made the room weep. It would have brought the house down. And it's this. To a room full of men and women adopted as sons. And it's important that we didn't trans change the translation to sons and daughters because there's something going on here. Adopted 
as sons. The Greek word for adoption to sonship is a legal term. It is a legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. Now, how would the church hearing this for the first time understand adoption? A few things. Real quickly, the Roman concept of adoption. The adoption process of a slave to a son, specifically in the Roman world, the significance of the statement just is absolutely profound. In this day and age, if a father decided to take a free child or a slave and make him a son, there's a fascinating procedure that would occur. The original father and the adopting father would have to appear before a Roman magistrate. Now, twice the original father would symbolically hand his child over to the adopting father. And twice, he would symbolically buy him back. However, on the third time, the adopting father would stand forth and plead a case before the magistrate as to why he should become his new father. And if the magistrate was convinced, then this new father would reach into his robe and pay a redemption price. A redemption price, literally what it was called, a sum of money. The old father would then hand his son over to the new father. And in that moment, the son became a brand new person, like a completely new place and rank in society. The adopted son, uh, not just given a brand new dad, right? He is a slave becoming totally free. If there is any debt, it is canceled. Any crime against them, the slate is wiped clean. New name, new robe, new family, equal heir. And from this day forward, functionally in that culture, considered in the best possible way, a new person. Paul actually uses this very specific adoption language somewhere else. Same guy who wrote to the church in Ephesus writes in Romans 8, 14. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought, you, brought about your adoption to sonship. Again, we read that and just think in general, technical language Paul is using. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father, which is this intimate way of calling on God. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This was not just going to the mountain and choosing a rejected child to be a slave. We have a God who is willing to go up the mountain to see you as holy and blameless and to choose you, right? Not to make you a slave, but to make you his son. Now, all of this like figurative metaphorical language, these pictures that Paul's drawing on is right, trying to communicate something. Don't get bogged down necessarily if you're like, I'm a little lost, so what does this mean? Like we too often in our Western kind of mindset dive into sort of the math of the equation or what Paul is trying to do clearly here because he uses all sorts of other analogies as other New Testament writers do elsewhere. He's trying to give you a picture of who you are in light of who God says that you are. And here we have a picture of a God who straps on his boots and says, I'm going to get my kids. Going to get my kids. I bet we all have stories, or hopefully many of us at least have stories, of parents who've just saved the day. Those moments where they have swept in 
You know as parents those moments where your kids are lost and you're not sure where they are. Those moments where someone, one of your kin, are in trouble. And it's like all of a sudden like mama bear, papa bear just comes out. This is a picture of a God who straps on his boots and says, I'm going to get my kids rescued, taken in, adopted, thus given a new identity and a new name. Now, I want you to see something that I don't know, maybe a bit intuitive and maybe feel like it's a bit obvious, but I think we need to name it. And it's this, our adoption takes place because of love. Love is the reason. Love is the catalyst. This is all about love. Read the beginning of that passage. It might have just, we just kind of read through. It might have just slipped in there and you might have missed it. In Ephesians 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Right, God's good pleasure because he loves, not because we loved him. This excludes any personal merit as the basis for God's action. It was God's good pleasure was the motivation, nothing you did. Colossians 3, 12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Romans 9, 25, I will call them my people who are not my people. By the way, he's quoting Hosea here. And I will call her, he's talking about his people, my loved one who is not my loved one. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that he has chosen you. This adoption, this charging up the hill, this going after the forgotten and lost This is out of his great love. God charges up the mountain out of his overflowing, never failing love. This is what we're talking about when we talk about a God that is love. And this path up the mountain is what we are called to walk. That path up the mountain that has been like trailblazed by his love is what we are called to walk on, the path of love. Now, one more, one more little passage or part of this passage I wanna show you. Verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So we already said, man, this language is eerily similar to the sort of language that is used in Ephesians and Greek literature at that time to describe those children that are left on the mountain. Interesting that he would use that. There's something else here in that word, pure. So the Greek word here simply is to be fully devoted, to be set apart and fully devoted is how this word would sort of be unpacked and defined, being fully devoted to Jesus and his path. And then a little later on in Ephesians 5, 2, so same letter, he says, following God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I point this out and because the way of love, the path of love is up the mountain. It is cross-shaped. It is sacrificial. It's a love that is spelled out and lived out for us. And it is a path that we are invited to join God in walking. This is a particular kind of love. 
And I would argue as a follower of Jesus, I would humbly submit that this has always been like the center of gravity for any definition of love. We're told in 1 John, this is love. Great, it's gonna sort it right out for us right here. Ready for it? Not that we loved God, interesting way to start a definition, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is what love is. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We see it again. The God who runs up the hill, who tells us what we are and who we are and we are loved, we are then invited, remember, in to walking that path ourselves. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this. Great, I would love to know what the greatest form of love is. Ready, here you go. Spelled out very clearly. It is to lay down one's life for one's friends. And they twist it. You are my friends if you do what I command. Love, to fully walk the true and robust and radical way of love means submission to Jesus. This is love, not feelings, not whatever you want it to be. It is that cross-looking, sacrificial movement toward the other. Sacrificial love wants what's best for the other at personal cost. It's easy to want good for others when it also benefits you. But what's divine? What's otherworldly? And deeply compelling is that Jesus on the cross like personal sacrifice for the sake of the other. This is the path we're invited to walk. It's the path that faithful followers of Jesus have been walking for centuries, including Ephesus. So I lied to you. Let's go back one more time. Let's go back to the hill where unwanted babies are being dumped and left to die, where archaeologists have found the remains of unwanted kids who had deformities in a city that operated with a mindset that required you to live up to a certain standard, to look and act in a certain way, where beauty and convenience and social standing is deeply connected to worth. A place that however uncomfortable it might be to name sounds a little bit familiar to life now. Ancient writings suggest that it was early followers of Jesus who would head up that hill to rescue the babies who were left to die, take them in and adopt them as their own. Obviously, right? This is the path of love. This is the path of love. And so one reason why we remind ourselves of just how good God's love is for us, why we reread and re-explore the adoption metaphor in the scriptures is so that we remain rooted and centered on the love of God. So we are marked by it. So we're marked by it. I want to be more marked by the love of God. It's the same reason why it's important to remember just how wretched we can be sometimes. 
right? We don't want to belabor that. We know we are made in God's image. We are set free, but it's, it's a good practice. It's why we confess. It's why we go back and remember just how good and just how radical and beautiful God's love and forgiveness is because it's important for us to be grounded in some semblance, especially in our delusional pain avoidant world, just how wretched we can be and thus how much grace and mercy has been poured out on us by Jesus. It actually helps us to love both enemies and and friends, the hurting and the lowly and all those who, quote, don't deserve it, which is ironic because that's everybody. Everybody. The love of God then begins to shape the patterns in our minds, like we talked about last week, and the culture of your heart, and you will find this love then naturally pouring out. We rehearse, we come back to the bread and the cup, over and over and over, we remember, we sing those songs, and we read those liturgies and poems, and take moments to reflect on just how powerful and beautiful and good God's love is. Because if it doesn't then seep its way in, if we don't practice it in our home churches, if we don't ask the question now, because I know all of you would agree, great, God's love, I should love more, great. But you don't ask yourself the pointed question, how might might the culture of love in my heart grow? Right? Then, then we're not going to be faithful followers of Jesus because you can't just turn it on when you want to. And we know that we can't just believe some things in our mind about being loving and act like that's going to have an effect when that tense point comes, when that enemy comes, when the opportunity to be radical and sacrificial comes and we don't see it or we're too numbed out or we just snap. It won't happen automatically. Jesus is inviting us to see our whole identity as rooted and established in love, in the love that is God. 1 John 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. See it. See it. Like, where do you need to see it and trust it again? Our little history lesson is simply my like small little attempt at helping us see it again from another angle. See what great love the Father has lavished on you. Maybe your prayer today is, God, give me eyes to see. It goes on that we should be called, here it is again, adoption language, children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us that it didn't know him. I leave that last part in because church, let's be in this moment a peculiar family, a strange family that is known for what followers of Jesus have been known for. Biblically faithful followers of Jesus have been known for for centuries, which is out loving everybody else. And I know that's hard in a moment where agreement equals love and lining up on certain things equals love. But that's not what love is. Love is the radical laying down. Love says even to my enemy and even to my foe. I lay down my life even for you. And so one last time we come back to Ephesians. And for us today online, let this be our benediction. Following God's example 
as dearly loved children. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And remember, as it says just a few verses later, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, for you. May we go and do likewise. Grace and peace be with you.